It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. All right, so today is April the 7th in 2023, and my guest is Ingmar Patrick Linden. Patrick taught philosophy at NYU for nearly 10 years and is researching public attitudes to radical life extension. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, really glad to be met here in Zuzalu in Montenegro to discuss your book, The Case Against Death. As a background, we met here at this event organized by VitaDAO and Vitali Kuterin, both strong forces for radical life extension. What's your impression so far? It has been incredibly stimulating. Uh, as a philosopher writing a book, it's very lonesome business. And uh, so it's really great to come out here and, and uh, share the ideas with people who are interested in, in, in the research side as well and the public policies of life extension. Yeah, yeah, and there's certainly a community that's yeah. very interested in life extension. So BetaDAO is a DAO that funds biotechnology, early biotechnology research with a strong focus on longevity. Right, so this is a community that's very interested in your work, and we really want to push the boundaries of technology of life extension. So today we're going to have a discussion why we should do it in the first place. But yeah. Because there is an argument that, hey, if you quit, we, we shouldn't do it. But your argument is, in a nutshell, death is bad, life is good. <laughs> yeah, that's probably it in a nutshell. I, as I also say that, uh, you could say that, that uh, the, the badness of life is a function of the goodness of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the intro in the book. It's very, very powerful. So I want to read this out here. Is it bad to die or is death after a long, full life, a good fitting end? Our answer to this question matters because it reveals our attitude about the purpose of our lives and our place in the cosmos. It also matters because science might be on the cusp of producing a new human condition, one where we will live significantly longer and healthier lives, where aging is addressed as an illness and cure and where death is not seen as the inevitable consequence of being born. Whether to encourage this research is a significant question. How did you, when did you become interested in life extension? So the idea that death is uh, a, a terrible thing it has been with me always, but also the feeling that we don't have enough time. So even as a child, I, I, I felt that days were passing too quickly. 
and I, I felt it was a, it was a horror that one day my grandparents wouldn't be with me, and uh, which they're not now. And uh, I never let quite go of that, but of course uh, I got into a lot of other interesting subject matters in philosophy. But then about 10 years ago at the, at the, at the dinner party, there was a triggering event. There was a, a woman who said, I think it's great to age. I think it would be really boring to stay young and living past 85 would be really, really too long to live. And, and I, I couldn't believe it because up till then, I thought that most people agree with me that death is a bad thing. It just seems almost like a truism and it's almost a banal statement, but really it's not just her, but other people I've talked to basically are very complacent. They're not too worried. They seem to be not too worried about death, but has accepted it. It's as if it's a kind of mark of being an enlightened person to say that death is as necessary as, as birth. And it's nothing to be afraid of, and we get enough time to do what we need to do, and then we should be thankful for what we had and just go away, go out of this life with, with, without any, any kind of anxiety about it. And so to me, who feel completely uh, differently about it, I feel that death is an abrupt and completely absurd ending uh, to to my life and to other people's life, I see it and there's nothing good about it. And as a consequence, we should try to assist. Can you also give a bit of a background? What gives us hope right now about life extension technologies, right? Because in human humanity, we increased our lifespan significantly in the last 200, 300 years, but this seems to be kind of almost like a conversions or I believe that's we've gone as far as we could at ages like 80 to 85 on average. So what makes us think or believe that we know from the science and from technology that we could push the boundaries much further? Well, this kind of research is progressing on many different levels. So on the kind of basic everyday level, we know roughly how to live to get as much out of our uh, healthy years as possible. And just doing that, that is, I'm talking about having a, a, a life where you have activity, meaning, uh, friends, you don't eat processed food too much, you get enough sleep, all those kind of low-tech things can already get you to 100. Uh, of course, with some luck as well, it's genetic as well. So that takes us to the kind of deeper level. And of course, there, as DNA becomes... Uh, information that can be handled by computer and so on, or we hope that there would be a kind of reprogramming uh, that would enable us to get a completely revolutionary amount of, of time, healthy time. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of reason for hope. I mean, you saw Raymond Kurzweil's uh, prediction just recently, a few days ago, he said that, you know, within well, 10 years or so, we could expect a big breakthrough in life extension and, and reach the, what you call the kind of escape velocity, whereby we add to a life expectancy every year, more than a year. Yeah, exactly. And we had at one event here, Aubrey de Grey speaking, who's one of the key researchers in the field of longevity, 
there's some key breakthroughs like the hallmarks of aging and Yamanaka factors where we have a clear pathway, at least biologically, where we know if we can solve the engineering challenges around sort of editing the human genome and making it being sustained in the body, we can radically extend lives to the point where we can reach escape velocity, right? So where we stop just adding a few more life years, but once we're past a certain point and really bought kind of the cell degeneration aspect that is aging, right? Sort of then we're going to go on the trajectory where we could live for indefinitely, more close to indefinitely. And then we have the kind of pharmaceutical level in between where right. not promising molecules, amycin, resveratrol, mm-hmm. and other mm-hmm. substances. And, uh, and then you have the more controversial ones of exchanging old blood for young blood. All of this work in model animals like mice, it takes time to, to try it. And people are, of course, there's some model regulations and restrictions in this as well. So that's it. Point also listeners to episode 15, where I talk about this with Sebastian Bonemeyer, so he's talking about the science and where, what we're already able to do and to see in mice. So we're able to, you know, treat two mice that have exactly the same profile and age. One looks super old, like Senal, and the other one looks still super young, right? So we know we have like a clear pathway for what we can change in the human body. So. It's within our reach to have the technologies to do radical life extension, which brings us to this discussion. Should we do it if we have the power? Yeah. Right. No, but I think in people's mind, there's a natural limit, uh, and that's nothing you can do about. But in fact, well, especially for humans, kind of defining what makes a human, they, they think. But when you look at other animals, some animals can live up to, you know, like the, the Greenland shark lives up to 500 years, perhaps, and, and, and lobsters and, and the, the naked mole rat and so on. They don't seem to age and If they die, they die from other, other environmental factors and so on. So there's no kind of necessity in that you're born and then you die. And it happens within kind of species given limitations that the limitations vary over species, but, uh, when you extend, for example, small worms, nematode worms, they can be extended several times. They're like the upper limit. Like, but so the, the, the upper limit is much more flexible than people normally think of it. Mm-hmm. Much more flexible. And the thing is, there is philosophical arguments saying that if we live much, much longer, then we're no longer human, right? Because we define our lifespan, which is so bizarre. Because no one argued that these nematode, these small worms, the, the round worms, that they were no longer roundworms because they lived longer. Is that, what is that now? What species is that now? Is it still a roundworm? Of course it's still a longer living roundworm on mice or a human. I believe it's a longer living human on mice and round. Found it completely different thing. So, mm-hmm. and also in the past, I mean, look at in the Bible, antediluvian times, people lived to almost about 969. So that I don't think there's anything in, in being a human that would prevent us from from also living much, much, much longer. I mean, we need technology to do it, right? Yeah. So by, yeah. Nat- yeah. by natural, quote unquote, means we'll discuss a bit the policy of the natural, oh. but we, so far, we don't know which technologies could get us there. But these technologies are within reach. Also, I think a key switch that's a switch in the mind that's important for people to understand is sort of the view is 
that's supported by researchers such as Aubrey de Grey, that, you know, we might think there is things like cancer or Alzheimer's that just are these natural limits. But what Aubrey de Grey is arguing, it's a cause of, the aging is the cause of these things, right? So you can pretty much model any disease and its relative occurrence and the, how you model sort of the biochemical cause of it as a function of aging. Yeah. Right. And aging, you can break down to the, to a biochemistry around like cell degeneration. Right. So why not sort of attack the problem at the root cause? Right. So instead of treating the symptoms, doing symptom palliation, we go after aging, the process of aging itself and how it happens in the cells and in the human body. You argue in the book and you talk a bit what the difference is between indefinite lifespan and immortality. All right. Yeah. So immortality is a, it's a difficult concept. Yeah. If somebody asked me if I wanted to be immortal, I would have to ask, what do they mean by immortal? If they mean the inability to die, I think that might be a too risky proposition because we can imagine scenarios where we get buried under a rock and then for millions of years, sediment forming on top of us. For millions of years, you will be stuck in one position. And if you still have the ability to feel pain, boredom, that would be hell. It would be one of the worst hells you could imagine almost, right? So immortality, that there's the literal inability to die, I think is something that is not desirable unless it's in a supernatural sphere. And I, I, I'm not excluding that. In some sense, my case against death is conditional. It says death is a terrible thing if death means annihilation. Of course, if death is just a, a, a pathway to a different dimension where things are good, like heaven, then I can't argue against that. That's not the problem. The problem is if death is the end, then death is taken. So what I want really is indefinite life extension. I want to live as long as I want to live. And I hope to want to live a long time. That's what I can say. How long you, how long do you want to live? Because if that's always the question, how long do you want to live? There's no sensible answer to that in, in numbers of years. If I said 1000, what happens on my thousandth birthday, I probably have, have tennis scheduled the next uh, weekend where I have some book I want to read. Uh, and I said, what did I say just a thousand years, right? Uh, so uh, I don't think we should settle for that. We should say we want the freedom to decide when we had enough. And we hope that we will always want to resist uh, that. Sure, let's have something else that's better to do. Yeah. I love the framing that you saying that you want to live as long as you can and hope that you want to continue living longer. Yeah. Because, you know, some people don't see like their life is worth living. Yeah. Right. And that is something um, that I think everyone should have a free choice in to yeah. decide when they die. Because sometimes you could end up at the point, it's kind of one of the arguments, oh, your life would get boring or you would suffer or whatever. But then it's like, well, what if you have the choice? Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel that death and also aging is a terrible form of unfreedom. And that's why I think that. Or 
the longevity idea of longevity and and to be anti-aging and anti-death is something that fits very well with a, a, a liberal mindset or a liberal politics, which has always been about trying to remove arbitrary uh, and unfreedoms. Can you talk a bit about the history of the view why death is yeah. good or inevitable or what's kind of the leading up to the case that you're making against death? My first step of in this writing this book was for the trigger, as I, I talked about, the, the trigger that people are very skeptical to wanting to prolong their lives. And I read studies about this and it shows that if you ask people if they want uh, some treatment that would extend their life to 120, uh, a majority does not want it. It's not interested. It's only about 38% of the it's, it's shocking to me. Right? Why wouldn't you want more healthy life? So what I then concluded was that there's something holding people back. And I think that there's a big kind of ideology that preaches that you should accept death and that the wise thing to do is to accept death. So I called it the wise view. And it goes very, very far back. It goes back to the earliest stories we tell, like, you know, blah, blah. Story of Gilgamesh, book example, he was, he was shocked by the death of his friend and he went to find uh, a, a, a substrate that would give him immortality, that would find death. Of course, in the end, he has to accept that it doesn't work and that immortality is only for the gods. And so, and then you move to the, the philosophers and Plato said that the goal of uh, the, a philosopher is to die and that philosophers are always pursuing death. And that's because he believes that what we really are, we are ideas. We belong in the realm of that which is real and forever and timeless. And all of this, all this material in flux, constant change is unknowable and it's not really real. And we can't have any knowledge here because things come and go. And so if you're a philosopher and knowledge is what you want, then, well, you can only find it on the other side, right? So he was very kind of disdainful of this life and, uh, and so then as something good, he said, don't pity me now when I'm going to, to drink the poison I've become them to drink, but no pity yourself, I pity you all. And then, uh, the competing schools in the ancient world also taught that death was acceptable. So the Epicureans who were materialists who believe that this is the only life we get and the world is a world of uh, void and, and, and atoms. Uh, and when we die, the atoms well, just disperse. They form other things like earth or things that uh, things can grow in or food for bacteria or so on. But uh, we will never be reconstituted again, right? So, and they thought that was fine. In fact, they thought that was really, really good because then we couldn't suffer anymore, right? So, um, if good and bad, as it is by Pachurians, defined in terms of pain and pleasure, well, then death is neither good nor bad. It's just nothing, right? Because it's neither pain nor pleasure if you don't exist. So, but then. Going out of existence is nothing that we, we could get to fear or want to exist really. That's on the Epicurean side. 
another competing school of course the Stoics and you know that the Stoics say that everything that happens with nature is acceptable and that virtue is to accept things the way they are and of course death is one of the things that things are so the only thing to fear here is fear so to speak you should just get rid of that negative emotion and go with the flow don't don't resist in fact they were also very kind of open to suicide even if there's a lot of trouble there are many ways out and they meant there are many ways to at least operate so uh both the the, the stoics and the epicureans then and the platonist competing schools they all kind of agreed that death is nothing to fear or resist and that virtue is acceptance that's a tradition that just been carried on through through the ages basically if, if you see if you have an image of a kind of wise and enlightened person, this person is not going to say, fear death, avoid death, right? Extend your health span. It's usually not those, those kind of advice. Yeah, I was you know, wondering two things. I mean, one is that I think people have kind of a pro-social bias, right? Yeah. So they gravitate towards other people around them too. So I think not seeing that it is a real possibility just makes people naturally, which doesn't explain why intellectuals would have that view. Yeah. But why intellectuals have that view could have something of like a, um, was like a pro authority, right? Because if death is the ultimate authority and it's kind of, you know, unavoidable, yeah. right? So there is real good reasons to believe it's impossible for us to extend our lives, right? Yeah. We didn't have the technology then that we have now. So what you then have to do is reframe kind of the bad thing as a good thing, like yeah. in the Stockholm syndrome way almost. Absolutely. Right. So because you're kind of bound to the, you know, moods and fates of your kidnapper or something like that, you kind of reframe it as, ah, but they're still like providing for the community and looking out for you. So it's not such, not everything is bad about it. And maybe it's not such a bad thing. Yeah, it's some, some sense you regain power by identifying with the power, mm-hmm. so to speak, and saying, no, I want this to happen to me. I want to be subjugated by, and thereby you kind of, you, you make it look as if this is really your choice. I think that's one reason. The other reason is simply that people are not aware of the possibility of doing something about this. And so if you can't change something, wisdom is to accept it, right? And so, yeah, yeah. So that's it. I wonder if death has also been used kind of as a social technology, right? So I'm thinking, for example, about um, extreme Islamism, right? Sort of that's justifying suicide bombers as, hey, there's this better world in heaven that waits for you. And sort of you should seek or look forward to strife for an heroic death. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, the message... Uh, uh, the ideology you need to defend your tribe is not tell the young men that they should be very afraid and try to avoid death. No, you need them to be completely contemptuous to death when you send them out to defend your country. So I think if that's what you mean, I think definitely that's a message we see in countless movies too, like the greatest thing is that you sacrifice your life. Often it's like they can't come up with any alternatives. I found this example of the Lord of the Rings. So yeah. uh, I didn't see it that way. So, uh, when, so the ring is basically representing sort of the temptation of immortality, right? Or maybe in a wider sense of 
sort of control and of a very, uh, of a lot of power yeah. that an individual yeah. can have. Right. But, um, Frodo kind of has this selfless act of destroying the ring yeah. and sort of the ideal is more, you know, lived happy with what you have in something like the Shire and yeah. kind of the resist temptation of immortality or something like that. And the Shire is very low tech. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a kind of dream of some bucolic England, yeah, make yeah. believe, and a very, very, let's say, uh, natural knife or something like that, where they're happy with what they have and they drink beer and it's, it's yeah, so okay. simple. And then you've got the, the furnaces of Stalaron, which is kind of industrial production of human beings or orcs and so on. So, and then really Like we modified probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then so you can say that the ring is scientific power, perhaps. I mean, I'm, I'm not the only one who thinks that might be part of the symbol, symbolism here. Also Harry Potter, you mentioned. Yeah, I mentioned Harry Potter. So, so Voldemort has to kill Harry Potter in order for Voldemort to reach his immortality. But it's always the story that either that immortality is a bad thing or that you have to do bad things to reach immortality. Also, the White Witch and, and the Odyssey and, and the Narnia story also gets in the car. And the she should have, she turns into the psychotic villain. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know of any story where the hero tries to find immortality and the villain stops them. Yes. I mean, I, the thing is with immortality in stories is that either you have it and it's kind of given by nature of God, mm-hmm. or you shouldn't get it. But there's this one movie that's in my reading, at least, yeah. have a different reading, had a very positive view of immortality. Yeah. Um, it's called Only Lovers Left Alive oh. by Jim Jarmusch. Yeah, yeah. So it's about these vampires and like they reminisce about when they talk to Christopher Marlowe and Shakespeare and all that. Yeah. And I was watching the movie and like, that must be so beautiful yeah. to accumulate that experience over yeah. a lifetime to have talked to all these great people. Yeah. And sort of, um, sort of uh, wisdom that would get over life. And I mean, the, the movie was a bit like, hey, you know, you still get like depressed and bored after a while. Uh, I think ultimately the movie was positive when it comes to mortality because it just shows, hey, you know, it doesn't solve all your issues. You still have the same kind of problems, right? But it wasn't, I think, or in my really putting it forward as a reason to not want to live for as long as you can. Well, maybe that was your interpretation. Maybe that was my interpretation. Yeah, maybe the movie didn't interpret no, it that way, but I was like, this is great. I, I, I want this. I because that would be a very rare exception. I mean, this, you, do you know Tuck Everlasting family that also kind of lived too long? I think a recent example that's, that is a perfect illustration is, is Dr. Strange. I think it's the model. Yeah, yeah. Where he goes to learn magic. And there's only one thing that's taboo mm-hmm. and that is to extend his life. Yeah. The, the one thing, thing that's he bends time and space, he can do anything. Yeah, yeah. But then the, the sign of somebody like using magic the wrong way is to use it to extend your life. Mm-hmm. What his master had, had done. Yeah, yeah. And that was bad. They're, you know. So it's, uh, it's an old taboo. Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean, the Greeks told the same story. So, you know, Sisyphus is also a story of him trying to avoid death. So, so what are the sort of most common objections or what are the strongest proponents sort of of the view that life ascension wouldn't be desirable today and what the sort of fixed argument? 
Yeah, so as a big umbrella term, you could call them bioconservatives for obvious reasons. They want to conserve certain basic limits or, or that they see as defining or what it means to be a human being, which I've already argued that I don't see that as, as a good argument. I don't think that we cease to be human just because we live longer. In fact, I want to go further and say we can become more human if we live longer and that the more, in some sense, the world is, is human made, the more human we can, we can become and, and not just, uh, you know, fight uh, our stock capacity around us. The people who resist this are bioconservatives and they fall in different camps. They can be political conservatives or they can be political liberals. Uh, so from the kind of political left, bioconservative would be concerned with the social consequences of life extension and say that it would create new divisions between people and uh, lead to various other social problems on the right side would say, well, it would undermine certain traditional models uh, of, of human life that has defined us. So. Those are the kind of differences. So in the kind of more lefty cap, you could say Michael Sandel has, has written a, a case against perfection where he goes up against almost any effort to use science to uh, make us uh, much better in many ways. Right? And so he says, it's a kind of con control breakery that we can't leave anything the way it is and that we kind of defining a world that ultimately is actually poorer, less human as he would like to like He likens it with, you know, uh, the, the kind of parents who try to decide everything for their child, right? It says, no, instead you should, you know, love your child the way it is. So we should just love everything the way it is more and kind of leave it alone or we are at least control freaks that kind of destroys everything it babbles. This also views from strong pessimism, right? So yeah. the antinatalist point of view, overpopulation, yeah. or hey, you know, life is so much suffering, so why should we do more of it? Yeah. yeah. Which is very hard for me to empathize with personally, but yeah. it seems to be a strong, you know, motivator for many people that they have this well negative view about. Yeah, yeah. There, there seems to be a, a kind of uh, trend of of pessimism and, and doomsday thinking mm -hmm. these days. And that doesn't help the, the, the longevity cause. People think, how can you talk about you know, longevity when, you know, the earth is, 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 is burning up or uh, the wars are coming or et cetera, whatever thing that, that they were most concerned with. So I think rather than, than, than seeing longevity, increasing longevity as that's a problem. It's very often part of the solution to a lot of these works. One thing that I was, I'd say myself, probably not yet convinced about before I read your book was mm, the argument from stagnation, right? Yeah. So the view is that sort of the fields, or you could think it was applied to economics, was the view that the field advances are at one that a grave oh, funeral at a time, yeah, yeah. right? So the idea is that as you get older, you get more conservative, so you're giving the young people less chance kind of to disrupt the field to make change. That's yeah. your, your yeah. argument. I think if you look at it 
first empirically, if this is really a big problem, then you should see more societies with the oldest demographic should be the ones with the least progress. Instead, you see exactly the opposite. So the countries with the oldest demographic, like Japan and, and Sweden and Denmark, are the most oppressive in the world, whereas the countries with the youngest demographic, like Afghanistan, is, is one of the most conservative and least progressive societies and least happy societies. Yes. Whereas you look at Finland, number one in happiness, and we have a lot of the old, other very old societies. So I think perhaps some, some of this is, is to be questioned just on, on empirical grounds. So what is it that's necessary for progress? Well, it's the right kind of structured society. You need, first of all, it needs to be a society where there's a certain amount of security and both security, physical and economical to some degree. And there needs to be a framework that respects all uh, individual rights, for example. That's important. Uh, one that respects science, right, with their institu such institutions. If those are in place, progress seems, I mean, evidently is happening. If they're not in place, such as in Afghanistan, it's not happening, right? But it's not so much about whether you have a lot of young people, a lot of old people, I think. It is, of course, possible that there will be entrenched interest and you accumulate, of course, money, power as you get older. So there, there will be, of course, a lot of older people with power. Now, of course, all old, old people are not the same. Some are very progressive in this thinking, just like there are a lot of young people who are not very fit in, in their thinking. So, uh, and that, that, that's one thing. But on the other hand, if, if you look at what we can do about it, uh, well, we can be aware that this is a possible problem. So if you look at now they're talking about maybe introducing term limits when it comes to Supreme justices, right? So they're talking about term, introducing term limits, limits where they haven't been before. And when you look at the free market, well, if all people are in power, very often it, it's because they are, they're good at what they do. And as long as you have kind of free market, there was certainly possibilities for younger people to come up with something. It's a paradigm yeah. advantage, you think, like that's right. So, I mean, we have, of course, the, the, the famous Elon Musk here, uh, who is not very on board with these ideas and say that there would be stagnation if people live too long. So he's a proponent of the stagnation argument. Yeah, he's a real yeah. proponent of the stagnation. But, I mean, you look at him, how he come up came out from nowhere and there yeah, was yeah. a GM and, and the old yeah, yeah. and he could still make it because there's kind of free, free market. Yes. As long yeah, as yeah. that's defended, but as, as long as there's all the right systems in place, this, this can be managed in so far as it's even a, a big problem. I mean, if longevity succeeds, we will keep our minds younger as well. Yeah. I mean, then if these things, there's multiple things going on at the same time, right? So we often think that younger people are kind of more fresh in their minds, more willing to change things. Um, but there's these two concepts, right? It's like fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence. Yeah. So crystallized intelligence experience accumulated over time. Fluid intelligence is something that often peaks in many scientific fields at very young age, like in mathematics, physics, right? 
which under the circumstances of sort of an aging population would still give you a competitive advantage. Yeah. But unless you could also extend fluid intelligence to older ages. Yeah, then who knows? Who knows? But this is then really going to the unknowable. In the big picture, though, to suggest that the best solution where we can come up with for stagnation is that people age, get sick, suffer from illnesses and die. That's absurd. It's an absurdly immoral argument yeah, yeah. in its foundation. Like even, yeah, yeah. you know, imagine if the technology exists and... No. You know, you would, it would be available and then some yeah. authority comes and no, you can't take this. You have to suffer, you have to die to deal with that stagnation. That would be kind of as morally absurd as it is. So, I mean, it really, so I, I wonder though, if sort of the, um, the stagnation arguments is really an argument more about power than about age, mm-hmm. right? And age correlates with power, right? Yeah. Because the older you are, the more you're. So, but if that's true, that could still be a problem, right? So if you're accumulating too much, if you're accumulating a lot of power, yeah. when you get older and have more crystallized intelligence, you might be able to acquire more power. Yeah. You have a lower sort of incentive to change, right? You're not willing to, I mean, there could be multiple things going on at the same time. Maybe yeah. you are taking more risks because you have this passion or you have this you know, you want to give young people the funding and the investment to take some of these risks, right? So, but I still wonder um, if, if it's true to some degree uh, or how to adjudicate with something like the Machiavelli effect, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. we know the Machiavelli effect in technology is like, um, you have something like status quo bias, especially of powerful intense interests. And they want to block sort of emergent things that they believe threaten kind of the water and what they live in. No, I mean, definitely. That's undeniable mm-hmm. that that's some a challenge. So, uh, but you know, real rational human beings, we identify that this is a, a challenge and we can perhaps find channels for new ideas and new ventures to, to all about to come, come forth. And also, if you think politically about that type of power, you could see generational representation. You could say the 200 year old, you know, they can't have all the powers and we, you know, we have, we have to have a, a corpus of people who are less than 50 or et cetera, right? I mean, there, there are many, many ways to be creative about this rather than force the status quo to, yeah. I mean, I think there is kind of a comp- compatibility issue, right? So, or there could be, or this was kind of one of my thoughts. So one thing that people quickly think about is social security, right? Yeah. I mean, you couldn't have like a retirement age at like 63 would be free to be old and young. So that is a case that's incompatible with life extension. I mean, so as, 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 it is, as it is. As it is now, but we don't know how, how much. Productivity will increase. Yeah, yeah. It's increasing with several percent yeah, yeah. a year. That will not be necessarily be a huge problem. But of course, as it is today, yes, I think that we need to increase pension age, at least for people who don't have fiscally demand. Or so if so, both yeah. welfare states, institutions, education yeah. to all the way to 
healthcare are very much designed to let people to yeah. die at a certain age. They would have to adapt a lot to age. We can have life extension, right? Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on how we'd have to adapt or what the better, better policies would look like in an age where we can have, where we have life extension to a definite age? In respect to, to one, in respect to, well, how do we do, um, how do we do healthcare, for example, right? So, um, you know, you could argue if you have more choice as to how old you get, that you shouldn't, someone else shouldn't bear the cost, like it is the case right now in kind of more socialized healthcare systems. Okay. I think that different countries can arrange that differently in, in different, but successful for their circumstances. I mean, I'm in Sweden right now. Uh, I don't think our system is terrible. I think it's, it's, it's one of the, the better functioning systems, although it's somewhat socialized, it's, it's a mix, right? So I can't really say that, but I can't say that you, you take a country like Norway, best oil reserves, whether they want to spend more in a socialized convert. But other countries that have different kind of econ economy and economic structure will have a different system. I can see more libertarian model working as well. Mm. I don't have a yeah. one, one system people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like think the people might fit better with different systems. Too. Yeah. Have a diversity of yeah. you know, governance system, yeah. which is a topic we talked about yesterday. Because yeah. the idea is that you could have sort of more sort of micronations, um, so new cities that have more higher degrees of legal autonomy, so we can run just a larger set of experiments. This one works with more government services with more like free healthcare. This other one works like much more libertarian. This other one is much more ruralist and escapist. This other one is more like hyper networked and integrated with the rest of the world. So I feel like the case against death is really a story analogous to many stories in technology in general, sort of the Promethean story of bring the fire and attracting the ire of the gods as a result. So a lot of sort of the aversion against um, deaths is very much an aversion to change, yeah. right? Because life extension would fundamentally change our lives in ways we don't know or expect yet. And that makes many people very uncomfortable. That's why they resist new technologies change. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's an Australian study where they interrogated people about their views on, on radical life extension and that it's unnatural was the most prevalent uh, moral reason for, for assisting. And they also asked them, can, can, can you see any, any benefits to radical life extension? And there was like a, a pair of people who can see any benefit. And I would say, you know, staying alive? Would that be benefits? Like, no, I mean, people to this and I, I think they, they, they do still live in this idea that uh, this is hubris, we should be in our place and uh, certain limits we're not supposed to, for some reason, like, definitely sending life is one, one. Yeah, yeah, I think what we also often don't realize is that many of these changes, we, we become used to them. Right. So, and they won't look as extreme as you initially think, right? So we, you know, living in a society with like a senescent dictator or whatever that's there, like we tend to kind of have exaggerate kind of very hypothetical risks, 
but how a new technology often plays out is, you know, we get used to it and it becomes normal, right? So she would go back like 50 years and have like handheld computers with the same powers and a rocket for the moon landing that would just be unthinkable to people. And if people had the choice, then they would probably like, you know, wanting to stop it because they're yeah. like, oh, now everyone can spy on me. And like, now is, isn't it all this, isn't the threat dangerous radiation or whatever and yeah. it's happening in the next few years. So. Yeah, it's like when they introduced the, 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 the steam locomotives that they said, you know, there, there's a sudden speed that humans aren't supposed to travel. But at the same time, we need to, I think, seems like that we haven't yet found a way as many civilizations have found a good way to reliably and continuously generate innovation, right? That you might be a bit con surprising for many people that hear this, but it seems to me that many of the very positive development technology, we were very lucky to get them. Mm -hmm. But in normal times, a lot of our impulses are kind of resisting these, these sort of desires to change, right? So we spent nuclear energy very prematurely we're doing the same thing and we're making it very hard for a drone technology and we've been continuously making it harder and harder to develop new drugs and therapies would be kind of the necessary requirement sort of to get new drugs and therapies for the drug development through the drug development pipeline to give it to people so i feel like in normal times we're setting ourselves up or we have like a very anti-technology anti-change anti-innovation impulse which I think is tragic. It's not a good thing. That's why I do podcasts to yeah. develop a more positive view of technological change. But I think that's ultimately what we're up against and where. Yeah. Well, change is for the unknown. So some, some, some degree, it, it makes sense to have a little bit of a trepidation when it comes to, to, for example, extending our health span, it's absolutely irrational. But I believe the resistance to it. Mm -hmm. I haven't really seen any good argument against the radical life extension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which you can see, say, it's the same thing with nuclear power, for example, right? Yeah. So when you look at the actual arguments or radiation or whatever, it turns out that the radiation is just minuscule or not at all dangerous. Oh. Especially if you look at the extremely large and obvious benefits that yeah. you would get from having super cheap abundant energy. Like, and that would be accessible anywhere in the world, right? It's one of the biggest bottlenecks for development in much of Africa or the developing world. It's lack of access to energy. A lot but, of the problems are political and, and this emission certainly isn't the, 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 all the part of that. So what are the political barriers we need to overcome or what are sort of should be our, where should we focus our efforts to make life extension a reality? Well, I mean, there, there are many levels that we should, uh, create a, a more kind of general positive attitude towards it. And that goes by just talking to everyone around us about it, the world will spread. Uh, we should try to tell stories uh, because that medium is very powerful, film, television, so on, where the hero is trying to extend the life of someone he loves and then villain is trying to stop or example, and then, then Politically, of course, we should um, try to inform politicians about this. Uh, it turns out that when you look at the surveys, that the people who know about this and people who are positive in science are also positive towards it. So a lot, a lot of a lot of this is about information, informing people. Yeah, so I feel quite hopeful 
about the chances of persuading people to be more pro-longevity. We're doing a part here in Zuzalu. We're doing another workshop this weekend on special jurisdictions for medical innovation, right? That's one of my fields. I think, fortunately, the medical establishment or the way the rules and policies are set up right now are not very conducive to life extension. Because it takes too long to get drugs and therapies to the pipeline and people don't have the right to um, access medical drugs very often. The FDA doesn't say, oh, we approve it. Yeah. Right. Even if these technologies are widely available in other countries, we still have to get approvals. So I think these are kind of very deep uh, and ethical flaws in our medical system that I want to help engender sort of uh, creating these spaces where it's, where we can, where we can work on life extension technologies and people who want it can get it and we can do more research and faster. Um, develop a better guardrails and institutions that would allow us to lift this sort of flourishing at longer lives. Anything else that we haven't talked about you like is important to understand and um, to get the argument if you book? I think that since a lot of people who are pro-science generally and liberal generally often the life extension or radical life extension as the kind of elitist project. And the journalists are not doing us any favors here. It's always the billionaires who are going to extend their life. That, that's a story I've seen so many times, like in The Guardian and New York Times and everywhere. It's always the Yeah, let's talk a bit about that. Yeah. The and, inequality and yeah, the... and, and, and so, so people who are liberal and, and, and generally pro-science and they see themselves as, as, you know, progressive and so on, they have a little bit of a hesitation when it comes to, to radical life extension. They associate it with billionaires, but also with inequalities and with, you know, problems such as overpopulation and so on. They, they see the kind of social costs not being worth the benefit. And I think for them, it's important that they kind of slow down and that they think, you know, if they think about people around them who suffer through aging and, and are dying, they have to think, is this still the best solution, right? That we allow this to continue. So whatever problem you have, Right. Is that worse than what we have now, the status quo? Because I think it, it really isn't. That there will be challenges, of course, when there's a change, there are new challenges, right? That's, that's a given. But it's still all the challenges that, are, that we've been talking about now. I'd rather have those challenges and not having people have to suffer through aging. And that's, I think that, I think that should think about that. The big picture, people who say we can't have it because of stagnation. Come on, mm-hmm. right? You shouldn't force people to yeah, die yeah. just to have frog It's just that many new technologies start at the yeah. higher end. Yeah. Right? So the Tesla started with yeah. a very expensive model that then gradually became cheaper. Yeah. Right. So, but, but even if I think very many people have a hard time sort of accepting or, or they don't like the idea that. Um, someone else can do something that they don't have access to or that yeah. makes them 
kind of stand. So, I mean, from a philosophical yeah. point of view, what do you lose if someone else gains? Right. No, no, absolutely. So, so, so people are very concerned about the distribution problem and the inequality. And, and the, the thing is, one has probably to accept that it will introduce inequality. But of course, so, so, so did the introduction of heart transplants, right? Or so did the introduction of washing your hands for the medical profession, of course, then in countries where, where they wash their hands, people would live long, right? So the, the answer to this is, is of course, not to uh, deny some people who are fortunate to have it, but to make sure that more people can enjoy it. The, any other distribution would be irrational, right? Of course, people can be, be, be stressed by the fact that why them and not me, but even when I think an extreme case, such as only people like Elon Musk can, can afford life extension, I would still not begrudge him. I would say it's very That's unfortunate. Great. I mean, he's very unfortunate that I can't help it, yeah. but I'm not going to force him to die just because I also cannot afford He's it. the most productive okay. human on the well, planet. I okay. want to live him longer. Even more great things. Like, yeah. um, like hey, it's good for me. It's, 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 good. it's good. good for you as well. Mm -hmm. also, Generally, that's, that's normally something we try to overcome that the neighbor has something that you don't have. I mean, that's, that's not the, I mean, it's better that you try to work to have what your neighbor has. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the, the thing is, this, I, I don't think that, and I think this is an important point. We shouldn't quickly buy into that. This is for the billionaires because there's no reason to think that necessarily has to be so expensive. All once it can become mass produced and so on, there's no reason to think that, that the price wouldn't come down. What makes drugs, for example, if there's a, if this is a, a question of drug, a drug, what makes drugs expensive is of course that it costs a lot to develop them and perhaps artificially much to, to develop them. Develop you hold like them. a pattern yeah. that also artificially is giving you monopoly power. So you can charge higher prices for a while. So absolutely. And then it's about how many customers do we have for medicine? And if we don't have a lot of customers, then the price has to be yeah. higher. But for an anti-aging drug, you have 10 billion potential customers. You can imagine how much uh, revenue that would be and how quickly that would reimburse any cost of development within a fair system, right? And of course, then you have to keep an eye that there's, there's no profit, not excessive profiteering. I mean, the way the medical setup system is set up right now, it's, it's very rare to see this, right? So that can come at very high price points yeah. and then sort of have this sort of monopoly through patents and through sort of the drug development pipeline and the fact that others can't compete with you, right? So this is kind of the most unequalizing way of doing things you possibly imagine, right? But as you correctly point out, and that's also why I'm very interested in longevity as an interest, as an industry that we're developing, because yes, we have this very big market and it's a very compelling argument, even for people with entrenched interests of power, because they're also old, right? So, yeah. and sort of through work such as yours and seeing, hey, this good thing to extend life, and I think, you know, a lot of people actually agree with that. It's more like that was 
sort of intellectually not opportune to say it, but I think there's massive potential yeah. to make it sort of a mass movement. And this would then also create pressures on the medical system to change the way things are set up, right? It's there. We got, uh, had a different way of doing this and not the patent system and not the drug approval happen under way it's done right now, then it would be a much more equalizing. We could replace it with something that's much more of an equalizing for us. Yeah. But it's much better, easier to reduce costs and then. But, and, and, and it's also, uh, the fact that this would be a very good investment to look at the, uh, you know, a more, the welfare state, uh, run system like, like Germany or Sweden, they would say, well, look, if we can delay people's aging, we will save a lot of money because it would delay the onset of various, very expensive illnesses. So if you have such a system, you could simply say, well, look, this is just simply good economics for us to provide this for our citizens. So I, I want to dispel this, this mess that necessarily just going to be for the billionaires. I, I see no reason to think so. No reason whatsoever. Yeah. That's why I'm throwing a lot of my weights too. And that's why I like to have these conversations about longevity. That's why I'm interested in decentralized science, in what Vita Dao is doing, in sort of um, creating alternative guardrails to get longevity, uh, funding for longevity related research, because one of the big problems is that aging is not considered a disease by the FDA. So we're working actively sort of on funding research that's going kind of against the mainstream and it's not getting funding there. And also working on sort of convincing different jurisdictions to um, consider aging a disease. So maybe we'll soon have the first one that does that. So um, yeah. holding our tongues right now, but we're having um, had a couple of conversations when it could be a real possibility. Anything else you'd like to give listeners on the way? Any references you would like to make to some of your work and how listeners can and well uh, i think they should uh, i guess get uh, two copies of this one for yourself and one for somebody you know who needs to be persuaded and then also look into vita dao i think if you want to get involved because they have many pathways for you to be, be involved if you go to their website vita, vita dao fantastic Patrick, thank you so much for thank coming so to the show. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. And yeah, let's fight, let's fight aging. Let's fight aging. And let's fight that. Good. Good. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.